0: Good morning. Welcome to Sunday Morning with 11 Action. I am Ken Tuck. Thank you for joining me today. I hope your day is going well. Hope you're enjoying a good weekend and looking forward to getting into the Word of God today. I want to ask you to forgive me for my voice once again this week. It still hasn't come back from that sinus infection and bronchitis and all that that was going on, but it's a little better, I think, this week. And I'll just keep talking about Jesus, and I know he'll continue to strengthen my voice and be back to normal soon. (laughs) But today, we're going to continue our study on the person of Christ. We started that last week, and to once again summarize the biblical teaching about the person of Christ, we can say this. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. So that's what we talked about last week. We mentioned that at the beginning of the broadcast and then we looked at the humanity of Christ last week and we talked about how Jesus was fully man. And this week we're going to talk about the deity of Christ and see that he was also fully God as well, so fully God and fully man. And this week, we're going to look at the deity of Christ. And if you missed last week's teaching, I encourage you to listen to it on the Love in Action podcast. You can find that on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Podbean, Google Podcast, Audible, pretty much anywhere you listen to podcasts, you can find the Love in Action podcast. And I'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast as well. Now, the person of Christ is a doctrine that we study in our Bible Doctrine Systematic Theology class here at Love and Action at our Love and Action School of Discipleship. And so as we get closer to Resurrection Sunday, which is next week, I thought it would be good to lead up to that day of celebration talking about the person of Jesus and talking about how he is fully man and fully God at the same time. And as I mentioned last week, I think every believer ought to study The doctrine of Christ, because it's just a must, I think, because you just really dive deep into who Jesus is, and you learn so much more about Him, which makes you love Him even more, and that just strengthens and deepens that relationship that we have with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what we talked about last week and this week is just kind of the tip of the iceberg, if you will, but just encourage you to really study the Word of God. If you like to learn more about the Love in Action School of Discipleship, just go to our website at loveinactionministries.com and you can check all about not just the ministry, but also our School of Discipleship as well, where we do teach the systematic theology course called Bible Doctrine. But before we get into today's message, we need to go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. So let's do that. Pray along with me, please. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we just thank you, thank you, thank you for loving us like you do for your Son, Jesus. Thank you for your forgiveness, your grace, and your mercy, eternal life that you give us through your Son, Jesus. Father, there's just so much to be thankful for. Just thank you for who you are, Almighty God, and we love you and we praise you, and thank you for this opportunity to discuss your word today, and just pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us Lead us in this teaching today. Father, we ask you to speak to us, and we pray that we'll be doers of your word and not hearers only. Father, I pray for everyone listening today. You know right where each one's at. Lord, just guide, direct, help each and every one. And Father, for those who do not have that relationship with you, Jesus, I pray today will be their day that they call out on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. So Father, thank you again for everything. We love you so much. And it's in your holy name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So as we look at the person of Christ to complete this biblical teaching about Jesus Christ, we must affirm not only that he was fully human, which we did last week, but also that he was fully divine, which we're talking about today. Though the word doesn't appear in the Bible, we use the word incarnation to refer to the fact that Jesus was God in human flesh. He took to himself a human nature. So he was fully human. The scriptural proof for the deity of Jesus is very extensive. And we'll just, again, like I said, we'll hit the tip of the iceberg uh, today as we study this. But it's very extensive in the New Testament that shows the full deity of Jesus Christ. And again, I'm going to be teaching from our Bible doctrine textbook that we teach here at Love and Action. And so in going with that teaching, we're going to look at a few categories here about the deity of Jesus. So let's start out with number one, the direct scriptural claims. We're going to look at the direct or some of the direct scriptural claims that Jesus was fully God. In the translation of the Bible, the word theos, which stands for God, is usually reserved in the New Testament for God the Father. Nonetheless, there are several passages where it is also used to refer to Jesus Christ. In all these passages, the word God is is used in the strong sense to refer to the one who is the creator of heaven and earth, the ruler over, over all. And these passages include John 1:1, 1, 1, John 1:18, 1, John 20 verse 28, Romans chapter 9 verse 5, Titus 2:13, Hebrews 1:8, and second Peter 1:1. 1, 1. I'm not expecting you to remember those right off the top of your head, so let's take each one. And let's look at them, at the scripture that uses the word theos, which usually represents God the Father, to where it's being used to describe Jesus Christ. Let's start out John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now right there, that's crystal clear that Jesus is God. We know Jesus is the Word, and he was with God from the beginning and he, the Word, was God. So that's pretty self-explanatory looking at that. And then we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. There's Jesus. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So the Word, God, became one of us. He took on human form. He took on the, the human attributes, and he dwelt among us. So that's Jesus. Our Lord and Savior, he was fully man and fully God. John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So see, Jesus has made God known. When he became flesh and dwelt among us, he showed us God. And before then, nobody had ever seen God. And Jesus, you remember, he tells us, You've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so he's telling us right there, he is God, but He's God in the flesh. John chapter twenty, verse twenty-eight. Thomas answered him, "My Lord and my God." Now, just to set that verse up, Thomas, being one of Jesus' disciples, he wasn't with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared to them after the resurrection. So Thomas says in verse twenty-five, just before that statement I read, Thomas says, "Unless I see His hands and the mark that the mark of the nails and Place my finger in the side of the nails and place my hand into his side. I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood beside them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, You believe because you have seen. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. So there was Thomas. He said, I'm not going to believe. That's where he gets the doubting Thomas from, right? I'm not going to believe unless I can put my finger in the holes where the nails were and in, the, in my hands and the side. But he saw Jesus, and he, he just exclaimed, My Lord and my God. He knew he was looking at God right there in Jesus Christ. And he made that statement and he believed, didn't he? <laughs> but I love what Jesus says. Greater those who have not seen and yet believe. That's you and me. We haven't seen Jesus face to face like they did, but we believe. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who haven't seen and yet believe. Romans chapter 9, verse 5. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. The apostle Paul calls Jesus God, and he says the God who is over all, that's who Paul is talking about. In Romans 9, Paul is talking about the Jews, and the blessings Paul assigned to believers in Jesus belong to Israel, according to the Old Testament. By recognizing Christ as God, Paul makes the point even more emphatically that God himself came to humanity through Israel. Well, we know Paul, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, that he said. He knew the Old Testament as well as anybody. And then when he had that encounter with Jesus, everything changed. And he would always look at the Old Testament and see how it pointed to Jesus, the Messiah. And he knew Jesus was the Messiah. The Word of God says, as was his custom, always teaching in the temples. And that's what he would do. He would take the Old Testament and show how it's the prophecies there are talking about Jesus. And so he he makes that statement here in in Romans 9, 5 as well. In Titus chapter 2, verse 13, we read, Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In Judaism, the ultimate revelation or appearing of God would signal the end of the present age and the beginning of a new one. The diaspora Judaism community at that time would call God the Great God and saw him as Saviour, so here Paul applies the divine title to Jesus, Hebrews chapter one, verse eight, but of the Son he says, "Your throne, O God, is for ever and ever. The sceptre of uprightness is the sceptre of your kingdom. The writer of Hebrews here is quoting. Psalms, chapter 45, verse 6, and to get a better understanding of what the writer's talking about here, let's look at Hebrews, chapter 1, and read verses 1 through 12. Long ago at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in the last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has appointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you will roll them up. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years have no end. So that's where the writer of Hebrews was quoting out of Psalms and showing how the Son of God, Jesus, is God. And that's just such a powerful, powerful piece of scripture there. And we could spend a whole program just on those 12 verses, but we won't today. But I encourage you to go back and read those 12 verses out of Hebrews uh, chapter 1, verses. Well, just read. It's it's just 14 verses in the whole chapter. Just read the whole chapter and just let that sink in. Because Jesus is fully God, and that scripture right there shows that such a powerful, powerful way. Let's go on now to Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1, where we read, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See right there, Peter calls Jesus God. So it's clear that we have at least seven passages in the New Testament that explicitly refer to Jesus as God. And so we can look at those seven passages, we can study those seven passages, and what we determine is, that's what it says, Jesus is God. So we see that in these scriptures that Jesus is fully God, fully man, and he's fully God. One Old Testament example of the name God applied to Christ is seen in a familiar messianic passage from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where we read, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's a popular verse during Christmas time, isn't it? But we see there that the Son of God is God, God in the flesh. And God even says that through the prophet Isaiah. Another important translation to look at is the Greek word "Kyrios," which means Lord. And we see it being used for Jesus. Sometimes the, the word Lord or Kyrios is used simply as a polite address to a superior or to something equivalent to sir in our day. Sometimes it can simply mean master of a servant or a slave. Yet the same word is also used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was commonly used at the time of Jesus. And it used it as a translation for the Hebrew Yahweh, or as it's frequently translated, the Lord or Jehovah. The word Kyrios is used to translate the name Lord 6,814 times in the Greek Old Testament. Therefore, any Greek-speaking reader at the time of the New Testament who had any knowledge at all of the Greek Old Testament would have recognized that. In context where it was appropriate, the word Lord was the name of the one who was the creator and sustainer of heaven and earth, the omnipotent God. There are many other instances in the New Testament where the word Lord is used for Christ in what can only be understood as this strong Old Testament sense of the word, the Lord, who is Yahweh or God himself. Let's look at Luke chapter 2, verse 11, where the angels told the shepherds of Bethlehem, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Though these words are familiar to us, right? They're very familiar to us because of uh, frequent reading them during Christmas time for us. But we need to realize how surprising it would have been for the first century Jew to hear someone who was the Messiah was also the lord that is the lord god himself we have to remember the context of scripture and the audience and those shepherds they're not like you and me they hadn't heard the christmas story over and over they were the first ones to hear it so when that was announced to them you have to under, we all have to understand the surprise that would have come upon that first those first century jews when they heard that another example is in matthew chapter 3 verse 3 where Matthew writes that John the Baptist is the one who cries out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. It's quoting Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, which speaks about the Lord God himself coming among his people. But the context applies this passage to John's role of preparing the way for Jesus to come. So the implication here is that when Jesus comes, the Lord himself will come. So again, we see Jesus is fully God. Jesus also identifies himself as the sovereign Lord of the Old Testament when he asked the Pharisees in Matthew 22, verse 44, about Psalms 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The force of this statement is that God the Father said to God the Son, David's Lord, sit at my right hand. The Pharisees, they knew what Jesus was talking about. They knew he was identifying himself as one worthy of the Old Testament title, Kyrios, or Lord. Such usages seem frequently in the epistles where the word Lord is a common name to refer to Christ. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. Now let's look at some strong claims to deity that Jesus made. I guess he did. He made some very strong claims to his deity. Jesus told his Jewish opponents that Abraham had seen his day, Jesus's day, and they challenged him by saying he wasn't yet fifty years old, and yet he claims to have seen Abraham. Well, we read that in John chapter eight, verse fifty-seven. And Jesus makes this startling assertion in the next verse, verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Jesus combined two assertions here whose sequence seems to not make sense, doesn't it? Because he said before something in the past happened, Abraham was. Something in the present happened, I am. But the Jewish leaders knew what he was talking about. They recognized that once that he was not speaking in riddles or uttering nonsense. When Jesus said, I am, he was repeating the very words God used when he identified himself to Moses as I am who I am. Remember in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Jesus was claiming for himself the title I am, by which God designates himself as the eternal existing one, the God who is the source of his own existence and who has always been and always will be. Jesus was making that claim that that's who he is. And we know that is who he he is. And let's look at another strong claim to deity. At the end of Revelation, Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's Revelation 22, 13. So when you combine this with the statement of God the Father in Revelation 8, which is, I am the Alpha and the Omega, so you combine those together, constitute a strong claim to equal deity with God the Father, sovereign over all of history and all of creation. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Further evidence of claims of deity is one I preached earlier this year, actually, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. This title is used 84 times in the four Gospels, but only by Jesus and only to speak of himself. The rest of the New Testament, the title Son of Man is used only once, and that's in Acts 7, verse 56, where Stephen refers to Christ as the Son of Man. The title Son of Man, it refers to Jesus as the heavenly eternal Son who is equal to God Himself. And this is especially true in John's Gospel where Jesus is seen as a unique Son from the Father, John 1:14), who fully reveals the Father. As Son, He is so great, we can trust Him for eternal life. And that's something that cannot be said of a created being. He's also the one who has all authority from the Father to give life, pronounce eternal judgment, and rule over all. So as Son... He has been sent by the Father, and therefore He existed before He came into the world. And we go back to, remember, John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. See, Jesus has always been, but He came in the flesh for us. These passages combine to indicate that the title, Son of God, when applied to Christ, strongly affirms His deity as the eternal Son in the Trinity, one equal to God the Father in all his attributes. And when we study the Trinity, we see and we understand that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is one. And they share the same attributes, the characters of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but he's, he's one. He's a triune God. And Jesus is part of the Trinity, and therefore he is fully and equally God. Let's look at some of the many examples of the actions in Jesus's lifetime that point to His divine character. These are things that only someone who was fully divine could do. Jesus demonstrated His omnipotence when He stilled the storm at sea with just a single word. And you can read that in Matthew chapter twenty-two, verses twenty-six and twenty-seven. Yeah, the disciples thought that they were done for. The storm was so bad and it was tossing the boat around, but Jesus. Just spoke to the storm, peace, be still. And it was, it was stilled at that moment. He also demonstrated his omnipotence when he multiplied the loaves and the fish in Matthew 14, 19. And he, when he changed the water into wine, John chapter two, verses one through 11, nobody could have done any of those. There was five barley loaves and two fish and Jesus blessed them. And they had more than enough to feed 5,000 plus people and had 12 baskets full of leftovers when they were done. And, of course, changing the water into wine, his first miracle that was reported. Uh, only someone who was fully, full deity could do that. Jesus asserted his eternity when he said, before Abraham, I was. Remember, he was talking to the Pharisees there in John chapter 8, verse 58. And again, as we read in Revelation 22, when he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, in both of those instances, he was asserting his eternity. Jesus has always been. God's always been. There's never been a beginning. There's never going to be an end. He's always been. The omniscience of Jesus is demonstrated in his knowing people's thoughts. And we see an example of that in Mark chapter 2, verse 8. And also in knowing from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Jesus possessed divine sovereignty, uh, a kind of authority possessed by God alone. And that's seen in the fact that he could forgive sins. Nobody but God can forgive sins, but Jesus did. And we can read an example of that in Mark chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. And another clear testament to the deity of Christ is the fact that he is counted worthy to be worshipped. That's something that is true of no other creatures, including angels, but only God Yet scripture says of Christ that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's in Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. Also, God commands the angels to worship him when we read in Hebrews 1, 6. When he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. So see, worship is only ascribed to God. But yet we see God saying, worship my son. Jesus is God in the flesh. Full divinity is Jesus. The New Testament affirms again and again the full absolute deity of Jesus Christ. And it does it in hundreds of explicit verses that cause Jesus God or Lord, Son of God, as well as in many other verses that use other titles of deity to refer to him in many passages that attribute actions or words to him that could only be true of God. Colossians 2.9 we read, in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Sorry, that's Colossians 1.19. And then Colossians 2.9 reads, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily." It's crucially important to insist on the deity of Christ, as well as the fact that he was fully human. Uh, This is not only clearly taught in Scripture, but also because, number one, only someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty for the sins of all who would believe in him. Any finite creature would have been incapable of earning that penalty. So only, only God could do that. Only God could bear the full weight of that penalty of all of our sins. Two, salvation is from the Lord. The whole message of Scripture is designed to show that no human being, no creature could ever save man. Only God alone can save man. Salvation is from the Lord. Number three, only someone who was truly and fully God could be the one mediator between God and man. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. You see, Jesus is bringing us back to God and also to reveal God most fully to us only Jesus does that thus if Jesus is not fully god we have no salvation and ultimately no christianity first john 2:23 says no one who denies the son has the father and john second john 9 says everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teachings of christ does not have god whoever abides in the teaching has both the father and the son so if we have Jesus we have god Do you have Jesus? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? He came here for you and for me. He came fully human, as we talked about last week, and fully God, as we've talked about this week. Have you given your life to him? I want to encourage you this morning to do so. Call out on the name of Jesus and be saved. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. And then on the third day, he rose again. God raised Jesus back to life to give all who believe eternal life. And he wants you to have that eternal life. He wants you and me and everyone to come to him. And so I encourage you this morning, pray, call out to Jesus, ask him to save you. Say, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. Cleanse me from all my unrighteousness. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose again on the third day to give all who believe eternal life. I believe and I ask you to forgive me. And I confess, Jesus, that you're my Lord and you're my Savior. And I want to thank you for saving me. I love you, Lord. Fill me with your spirit and help me to live for you every single day. Pray something like that. He'll come in. He'll save you. He'll forgive you. He'll give you eternal life. He'll give you life right here on earth. And if you made that decision today, I encourage you. Let me know. You can call our Love in Action office at 334-494-4995. Or you can email me at tuck at loveinactionministries.com. I'd love to give you some next steps on what to do next in living this life for Jesus, the greatest life ever. Well, we're out of time I thank you for joining me today. I pray you have a great rest of the day and a wonderful week coming up. And remember that Jesus loves you so very much. And I pray the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.